Kia ora, I'm Anna Thomas. Today on The Detail, it's been labelled a national tragedy. We're talking about the leaky building saga. It's not just part of our shameful past, it's very much part of our future too. And at this boom time, as the building industry faces huge pressure to build more homes, now more than ever, we need to be learning from our mistakes. But are we? A record number of building consents have been issued in Auckland over the past year. Official numbers show just over 14,000 consents for new houses were issued in Auckland for the year ended June. It sort of turned your Kiwi dream of you know owning your own property and establishing a household for yourself um, into a bit of a nightmare. And they've said that the flashings are all wrong around the windows. The cladding is completely different to the design of the house. She's had walls cut open to find the source of mould growing on them, mould in the carpet and water under the ranch sliders. We've actually moved our bed into our lounge to try and keep warm. And for a new house, I mean, that's, that's just disgusting. Imported labour, new products that are not being rigorously tested and councils under extreme pressure to sign off new builds. Could we be heading for another crisis in years to come? Yes, we are still putting up buildings that will fail in weather tightness. In other words, leaky buildings. Leaking and rotting houses were first exposed in the 1990s. It took until 2010 before the scale of the crisis was seriously addressed and the government of the day announced the first leaky homes package. Around 42,000 homes uh, may be affected across the country. This is on a similar scale to a major natural disaster. In human terms, it adds up to many thousands of damaged lives. Uh, many people and their families are suffering health problems caused by stress or by inhaling foul air uh, from their rotting homes. Well, anything between $11 billion and $23 billion, and some people think it could be worse than that. Because so the biggest disaster ever? Yes, and something that could even threaten our credit rating as a country. It's that big. I'm proud to lead a government that has finally found a way to get these homes fixed sooner. I'm confident over time it will enable us to put this leaky homes curse behind us uh, once and for all. But the leaky homes curse is not behind us. The estimate of 42,000 homes was not even the tip of the iceberg. And the upper estimate of the disaster, costing $23 billion, has more than doubled. A report from 2015 conservatively put the number of homes affected at 174,000 and that doesn't include rotten schools, hospitals and other government buildings. Journalist Peter Dyer has spent seven years researching the issue and has recently published the book Rottenomics. He says the saga began back in the 1980s. At the root of all of it or most of it, in my view, was the economic slash political revolution that occurred after the 1984 uh, Labour government came to power. And that was, it's com that's commonly referred to as Rogernomics, and that's where I got the title, Rottenomics. Um, the idea that basically if you turn all the business of government and industry over to the private sector and get government out of the way, uh, we'll end up in a kind of... Uh, neoliberal paradise where everything will be better quality and everything will be less expensive. That lies at the heart, to me, of the leaky buildings uh, disaster. And obviously that wasn't the case. Um, Certainly not in our uh, building and construction industry.
So opening up the market to be self, more self-regulating, what happened? Well, there were a number of factors involved that came together. Um, probably the the most commonly referred to was the decision to allow untreated radiata, untreated timber, to be used in structural uh, applications in New Zealand buildings, especially New Zealand dwellings. And um, that's that's the decision that has been widely blamed. It's the, it's the popular uh, kind of scapegoat um, cause of leaky buildings, and it certainly is a big one, but there's a lot more. What was the reasoning behind allowing the untreated timber to be used? Well, that's a really interesting question, and it points to some really interesting history for me. I went through hundreds of pages of documents in the Standards New Zealand files of that decision. What became clear was that, let me back up a bit, the the problem with leaky buildings is, is decay. Uh, building materials decay, they rot. We had had so little problems with decay up until then, uh, at least during the last 30, 40 years, that, interestingly, there was n- almost no mention of the possibility of decay in any of this discourse in Sanders, New Zealand. Nobody was worried about buildings possibly rotting if we stopped treating some of the structural timber. In, uh, instead, the focus was on borer. This damage is hardly ever structural, but it's annoying and it's ugly, and and you prefer that it not be there. There are several reasons that nobody seemed to care about decay, but one of them was the fact that we had been building decay-resistant houses for so long that we kind of forgot about it. We took it for granted, and that was down to a very successful regime of boron-treated timber. And so when they finally started talking about all this uh, so-called extra expense and bother to treat timber, they thought, well, one person in particular did a survey of old North Island houses and found that they had been built, say, in the 20s and 30s or even earlier with uh, untreated timber, and they were still fine. Treated timber was considered an unnecessary nuisance to some. It was too expensive, it had to be soaked in boron for some time, and took a long time to dry. If it wasn't properly dried before being used, it would shrink and warp, causing all sorts of issues in the lining and interior cladding. So, with some intense lobbying of the government, by one company in particular, the rules were changed. Leaky building campaigner John Gray made a documentary about it for TVNZ called A Rotten Shame. Carter Holt saw the opportunity, managed through a great deal of determination and influence and using the weakness in the standards process to get the, uh, the standard changed so that a, a small amount of untreated timber could be used, which, once they got it through, it flooded the market. What was their motivation? Money, basically. This might have worked if building designs had remained the same and building practices had remained the same, but there was a lot of change going on. That was a very um, turbulent time in industry, as you will remember, New Zealand industry and government, and we had a whole lot of things that made it not so safe to use uh, untreated timber in uh, structural applications. Um, uh, One of the biggies there was the, the new building designs. The 1990s was the age of the free market, so the government took a light-handed approach to regulating the building industry with wide-ranging reforms aimed at making it easier to build. 
Among other things, they abolished apprenticeship schemes and changed the building code to allow for creative designs in houses. The Mediterranean-style houses with um, fake stucco or real stucco and um, different designs that didn't drain properly. The people who did that early research looked at buildings that had um, proper drainage and proper ventilation. In fact, as you probably remember, a lot of the old buildings including ours in Nile, were so well ventilated, they were, they were a bit uncomfortable, <laughs> yeah. or could be. But the good news there was that they didn't rot. Uh, but a lot of these new buildings that came along uh, were much better insulated, uh, which was good news and bad news. Um, the bad news was that moisture that got in didn't come into contact with much air, and uh, the building material stayed wet and rotted, in some cases, extremely quickly. Wet, untreated radiata will rot very quickly. Where are we at now? That's a good question, and I tried to um, address that in my book. The only way that I could think of doing it was to go through the elements of the perfect storm, the leaky building's perfect storm, as I was able to identify them and try to look at each one and see what, if any, progress has been made. And it turns out there has been some progress made in some in a couple of very important areas. But overall, down to a person, uh, building industry people will tell me that we're still building these uh, houses that are doomed to fail in weather tightness. In other words, they're doomed to rot. Why is that still happening? I mean, and how is that happening, Peter? Um, you would think that it would have been sorted by now. I guess that one of the reasons is um, lack of intervention. You know, the free market is still basically calling the shots, as far as I can see. And uh, there has been some regulation introduced, as I said, that has uh, helped uh, deal with the problem, but not nearly enough. And one, re one reason I think that probably is the case is uh, there are two reasons, actually. One is denial. <laughs> People don't want to talk about it. And the, the other reason is related. It's so big that people just, when they do want to talk about it, they just kind of uh, metaphorically throw their hands up in the air and say, how can we fix this? It's too big. And um, governments certainly in, um, haven't been able to properly address it. Uh, I think part of the problem there is the three-year election cycle. This is a long-term problem. The solutions have to be structural because the problems that brought them about were structural reforms. And that's that's huge. So if you want to come up with a structural solution, you're, uh, you're going to go into uh, somewhat untested waters and it may not work so well if you're worried about being elected uh, three years later. This is about cutting costs, isn't it? That's a huge part of it. The, the people in the industry and government who brought about those reforms were largely very much focused on cutting costs, getting government and red tape out of the way. And if we did that, then everything will be better and, and it'll cost less if we just get government out of the way. That was the kind of the mantra of the neoliberals in the, starting in the late 70s and then culminating in the Rogernomics revolution when the 1984 labor government came in. So when you say we are still building leaky homes, what practices are still being used or what is actually being done Okay, one of the big ones 
um, is um, the, the problem with um, industry building skills. Uh, we, we never really recovered from uh, a hemorrhage of building industry skills that happened as a result of the uh, structural reforms. Um, we, uh, those structural reforms involved two biggies. One was doing away with government departments that trained to a very high standard craftsmen. And one of those was the Ministry of Works. There was the post office, electricity, and so forth. They were all dealt with summarily, and and all the uh, training that they brought to working people went with them. And the other was what I would say was um, the Employment Contracts Act, 1991, which essentially uh, put pay to uh, New Zealand's unions. Uh, the biggest single source of industrial skills had been industrial apprenticeships, and those were run by the unions, and the unions are only a shadow now of what they used to be, and the, they tried to make it up with ITOs, but it really hasn't um, filled the gap from what I understand. Um, that's a long way of saying that one of the reasons we have problems with putting up buildings is um, a lack of a, a good supply of skilled craftspeople to actually do the job right, and that we have a lack of skilled craftspeople anyway, as evidenced by our constant need to import um, builders from other countries. We import a lot of people who may have uh, skills about building in Ireland or the United States or Africa, wherever, but they don't know about New Zealand building methods and they have to be educated. Between that and our boom-bust cycle, building boom, building bust cycle, which uh, still needs to be addressed and is still happening. We're in the middle of a huge building boom right now. It's just kind of chaotic. I believe that since structural reforms were the primary cause of this disaster, um, the only thing that's going to actually uh, put paid to it will be more structural reforms in the other direction. On every building site, uh, building work has to be signed off by councils, right? So why aren't they picking up well, issues? Well, councils are, I don't know about, use the word overwhelmed, but they have thousands and thousands, especially the big councils of building consents to deal with, especially in Auckland. One of the ways that they deal with it is with a device called producer statements, where you essentially allow the builder to certify their own work. It seems, you know, it doesn't give me a warm, fuzzy feeling. <laughs> to allow the builder to certify their own work. but And these builders are on a... They have a list, and they're monitored to some degree, and if they mess up, uh, they're tossed off the list. You, you know, you'd much rather have somebody independent of that process to be looking at it, I would think. And as the situation is now, there's just uh, too much building going on and not nearly enough personnel to um, actually check it. Okay, so we could see big issues uh, in the future. We could see. I would, I would say yes. Morris Williamson, back in 2011, Morris Williamson put, put the cost of the disaster at $23 billion. It's It's way more than that in your estimation, isn't it? Yes, it is, I think. And he got that figure from a PricewaterhouseCoopers report. Uh, most people in the industry that I've talked to think it's uh, much higher than that. Uh, for one thing... That Pricewaterhouse Cooper report had a mandate to look at leaky dwellings only. 
certainly leaky dwellings are a large part of the problem, but the, the building industry puts up more than dwellings. And you have more than dwellings that fail and weather tightness that rot. Just think of all the schools and hospitals and government buildings, commercial buildings, motels, etc. A few years later, in 2014, the government was wondering uh, whether the problem was really that big. So they commissioned another report, and unfortunately, it went the other way. They came up with a much larger figure of number of dwellings that were eventually would rot uh, prediction, and that was 174,000 dwellings. And the government never published that report. They didn't come up with a dollar figure, so I took cost-to-dwelling ratios from the first report and came up with a conservative estimate of $47 billion. So what is the future? If, you, if you're saying that you know, we still have yet to uncover more leaky buildings... What, what is the future of the industry? In- well, I don't know. The future doesn't look so great to me, uh, to be honest, but I would hope that somehow we would come up with some kind of regime or program or solution that would actually be structural, that we would find a way to properly train our own tradespeople, that we would find some way of moderating the boom-bust cycle so we could build at a fairly even pace and People would have jobs. They would know that they'd be have solid employment for X amount of years, and we wouldn't have to go to the expense and trouble of importing people from different countries who don't aren't familiar with our buildings. Um, and we also have a big problem with materials. We've got hundreds of thousands of materials, building materials, coming into New Zealand, most of which are never tested, and they go straight onto the market. And we've made attempts to address that too, but we just don't have we don't have the resources at, at this moment. Well, you have called this a national tragedy. Well, it certainly is a it's certainly a personal tragedy for the people who are forced to live and and get sick in these buildings and lose huge amounts of money. And you multiply that by 174,000, you know, how many people 2.7 per home and it becomes a national tragedy. It's it's actually disgraceful, don't you think? Is there something that you could you could tell people or say to people who are out there looking to buy homes, a word of warning? I would say do as much pre-purchase checking as you can find. If you can find a, um, somebody who's experienced in remediation, have them look at it. These people, the good ones, can drive down a street, look at a building and say, yep, that one's... That one's doomed or that one's going. Uh, and there are some really good people in that industry. And if you had a message for the government, what would that be? If we really want to uh, deal to this problem, we have to take the long view. The answer to these problems caused by these structural reforms, I think, has to be structural. In other words, we need serious structural reforms across the board. Are you confident that that will happen? No. Are you? In October, Building and Construction Minister Jenny Salisa announced a raft of changes to the Building Act, which include lifting the competent standards for builders and new legal requirements surrounding building products being fit for purpose. The changes will also require product manufacturers to provide detailed product information, including on performance and testing, and give MBIE the power to investigate products and building methods. 
Peter Dyer has read those proposals and believes they contain gaps. That's the detail for today. I'm Anna Thomas. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by the RNZ NZ On Air Innovation Fund. Hit the subscribe button to stay across the detail every day. And if you're on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners find us. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. Our thanks to Peter Dyer, author of Rotonomics. Kakitiano.